And turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Last week we read chapter 52 verses 13 through 53, 6 as our uh, parallel or collateral reading for our Acts 23 passage. Today we'll read the remainder of chapter 53 and we'll consider these verses. Really as an extension of last week's sermon from Acts 23 concerning the resurrection hope. Follow along as as I begin in verse 7. Reading of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember this is a prophecy 700 some odd years before the Lord Jesus Christ was incarnate and um, how how perfectly it pictured the coming of the Lord, His suffering, but also His resurrection. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of our God endures forever and ever. And aren't you glad that as Isaiah says later, writing under the inspiration of the Father, that indeed God's word does not go out and return to him empty but it accomplishes everything that God intends for it to accomplish in the hearts of those who hear. Well, as I've said already last week, as we were in Acts 23, we looked at the resurrection. We looked at the hope of the resurrection for which Paul was being persecuted. Today, we're reading verses 7 and following. We're going to particularly focus on 10 and Uh, 11 and 12, and we want to consider this wonderful passage and how that the Lord spoke these words 
And you look at it, you read it, and I hope as we read it, you think, wow, how did 700 years later, how did the Hebrew leaders, particularly those who were supposed to have had the the best working knowledge of the Old Testament, how did they miss this? How did they miss Christ was this one of chapter 52, this servant who acted wisely, this servant whose appearance was was marred beyond human semblance, this one who bore the grief and carried our sorrows. How did they miss that part? And then secondly, how did they miss the resurrection? If they weren't convinced by his perfect life and convinced by, by the work that he did, even to death on the cross, how did they miss the resurrection? Because I hope you saw. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But then notice, it was also the will of the Lord that he shall prolong his days. Notice how that flows. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now when the, Jew, when the Jew heard makes a, makes a, makes an offering for guilt, what did he think of? He thought of death. He thought of the sacrifices. He thought of, of those lambs and bulls and goats and pigeons and, and other, uh, animals being sacrificed to death. And yet, it says immediately, he shall prolong his days. He, being God, the Father, will prolong this servant's days. So he's going to be dead, but he's going to have life. And then the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. Okay, so he's been sacrificed to death, but his days are going to be prolonged, and he's going to see. I don't know. um, You have to be alive to see things. He shall see. Now notice, he goes on down. Verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many. Okay, great. You could just say, well, his, his posterity, his descendants will get some. But notice what it then says. God's going to divide the spoil. But then it says, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. God will see to it that the Lord's the Lord Jesus Christ, people will have plenty. But guess who's going to do it? Guess who's going to be the one that that divvies it up, the one that dishes it out, the one who provides the servant who suffered? Well, again, that suggests pretty strongly that he's going to be alive, doesn't it? And then notice how those verses end. He poured out his soul to death. That's the basis for him having this great inheritance to give to all of his children. It's one of the beauties of the doctrine of adoption, isn't it? That we as the adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God have everything we need given to us. Yet he bore the sin of many and, notice, he bore, past tense, he makes intercession for transgressors. That That's present tense. So as you read through here, you're like, okay, he died, he's alive. He earned the inheritance, he's dividing it up and giving it out to his people. He bore the sins of many and he's making intercession for us. 
That's exactly what the New Testament says, isn't it? All of that. Again, one of the reminders, I hope, that is getting stuck in your brain from weeks and months and years now is there's nothing new under the sun. That's true about our sinfulness. We see that every day of our life, don't we? But it's also true of God's wonderful doctrines. God didn't change any doctrines. He just, as E.J. Young said, supplements them. He gives us more info about them. All this is New Testament teaching, isn't it? It shouldn't surprise us it all came from the one true God. It's His book. So the Old Testament saints looked forward to all this. Wow, this one that's going to die and take care of our sins is also going to be raised and he's going to, he's going to divide the spoil with the strong. Now, if we had time, I would turn with you to Ephesians chapter 4 as just one New Testament example of where the Lord Jesus Christ is dividing the spoil, where he's giving out the gifts. So I would encourage you this afternoon, be a good exercise, go home and read chapter 4 of Ephesians. And you'll read and you'll see the Lord, the one who has both descended, come to this earth, and the one who has ascended, gone back into the heavens at the right hand of the Father, that one is giving out his inheritance to the church, to his people. Well, hopefully that's enough for you to see, wow, we, you're right, pastor, the resurrection is right there. We saw it in Psalm 16, didn't we? The prayer that the Holy One would not see corruption. The promise, indeed, not just a prayer, but a promise that the Holy One would not see corruption. Would not be abandoned to Sheol. In other words, would not remain in the grave, but would be raised from it. Here, Isaiah speaks to it. The end of Daniel, the last verses of Daniel speak to the resurrection. So the Old Testament saints had plenty of reasons to expect and to know and to look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of the servant, of the Messiah, of the Savior. Now, what I want us to do for just a few minutes is is look at three points built on that. And the first is this, that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that we read about. Did you notice? It's interesting in the New Testament how little is said about certain things and yet how much we know about certain things. For instance, the crucifixion of Christ. Go back and read the gospel accounts. We don't, the gospel writers don't say much about it. In fact, when they do speak of the crucifixion, he was crucified, or they crucified him, or he was crucified between the thieves. It's very matter of fact. The resurrection. We come and we read about them going out to the tomb and they don't find anyone there and they go tell and here's the response. There's no real detail, is there? You know, how many angels it took to roll the stone away or whether Jesus just, you know, hoofed it back or how it happened. It just did. It's just true. Here, 
we read about the resurrection in these in these Old Testament terms. And it's good for us to be reminded of what we should really be thinking about when we think about the resurrection. Yes, it historically took place. We should believe it. We shouldn't be, even like those disciples who first heard from the women, we shouldn't take it as just an idle tale. It was a real event really happened. Christ really rose from the grave. And by the way, look through the New Testament at the number of witnesses to that event. To the empty tomb and to His both having been dead, certified dead, and raised, certified alive by countless numbers. And the Scriptures give us that information. First thing I want you to see here is that the resurrection was the will of the Lord. Did you notice that in verse 10? Yet it was the will of the Lord. Again, down at the end of verse 10, the will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Isaiah's writing here, and he wants you to understand, just as he wanted his initial hearers to understand, and the Lord more than Isaiah wants you to understand, that this was his plan. This was his will. This was this was planned. God was not surprised. There is no plan A, B, C, D with God. Things didn't go bad on earth for Jesus, and God had to come up with a plan to raise him. It was the will of God. When you start thinking will of God, you have to start thinking eternity. You have to start thinking before the foundation of the earth. God ordained it all. God willed it all. It's the will of the Lord. This was part of that wonderful covenant of grace in eternity. The Father and the Son, and I, by implication and, and by, by, by theology, we can see the Holy Spirit as well involved in that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, covenant with one another. This is the way we're going to do it. You remember? On that evening before Christ was crucified, when He was praying in the garden, and those weak, Men like you and I kept falling asleep. And the Lord was praying and sweat drops like blood flowing from his forehead. And he said this, Nevertheless, not my will. In other words, not not what I'm feeling now in my flesh but your will be done. In other words, the will that we determined from eternity past, that covenanted decision that we made in eternity for me to suffer, let that be, let that be true. And here, we see the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord. It was the eternal design of God to crush his eternal son that he'd bear the grief of many, that he would take away the sins of many, as, as this passage tells us. But notice also it was the will of the Lord 
that he shall prolong his days. It was the will of the Lord, yes, to crush him. It was the will of the Lord that, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ would bear our sins upon himself. But it was also the will of the Lord from eternity that Christ's days would be prolonged. In other words, it was the will of the Lord that he'd be raised from the dead. It's the will of the Lord that he shall prosper his hand. It's the will of the Lord that he, after death, shall see, verse 11. It's the will of the Lord that he shall divide the spoil with the strong. It's the will of the Lord that he makes intercession for transgressors continually, as Ephesians 7, building on this passage, verse 12 says. It's the will of the Lord. Whenever we think of the resurrection, whenever we think of the perfect life of Christ, whenever we think of the atoning death of Christ, whenever we think of God's work in creation, God's work in redemption, God's work in the coming, the new heavens and new earth, that's His will. That's His design. That's His determination. See, because we're not like God, by that I mean we're sinners, we're fallible. We often make plans that we can't carry through. And we, if we're not careful, can end up making God in our image, you know. And we can begin to think that, well, you know, God probably planned for Jesus just to live forever and No, he planned for Christ to die. And he planned to raise him. And because God is God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, he can keep all his holy will. He can do all his holy purposes perfectly, without a glitch. So it's the resurrection is part of the will of God. Second thing I want you to see is this is the resurrection is the basis for our justification. When we think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we shouldn't just think and I, I suspect we we probably are tempted to do this, we shouldn't just think that, oh wonderful, Jesus rose from the dead, therefore we can have victory of the death and we can enjoy the resurrection someday. Well, that's all true. That's part of Christ being the first fruits of the, res- of, the of the of the dead, the res- first fruit of the resurrection. But there's more to it, and this passage tells us. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see, there's that being resurrected, and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The resurrection is the basis for our justification. Jesus was raised, therefore, he was vindicated by the Father that everything he had done to secure our salvation was vindicated. 
wasn't just that we might be raised one day and not have to spend eternity in the grave decaying, but that we might be justified, but that we might have right standing with God the Father. See, we're, we're enjoying the fruits of the resurrection right now. We're enjoying the product of the resurrection now. The relation we have, being in good standing with God the Father, is because Jesus was raised. Yes, it's because He died on the cross. And yes, it's because He lived a perfect life. But yes, it's because He was raised from the dead. You see how it's all wrapped in here? The prophet just just rolls it all together, just weaves it together. He died, he's going to be alive again. Because he died and because he's going to be alive again, because his, his, his posterity is going to live and because they're going to have all sorts of good gifts from him, uh, you're justified, you're accounted righteous. But notice here, reckoned righteous. Do you understand that you're not righteous because of what you do? You're righteous by virtue of what Christ did. That has to be reckoned to your account. We have some some accounting people in the congregation, and they're busy right now, as you know, doing your taxes and other people's taxes. And they're reckoning, and they're accounting. They're putting this over here on this side of the ledger and this over here on this side of the ledger and they're taking and they're adding and they're subtracting. And that's what it says. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus Christ, make many to be accounted righteous. You get counted as righteous even though, guess what? You're not. Really? I'm not? That's right, the Bible says so. There's none righteous, not even one, and that not even one is not even you. Not even I. And the only way you can be counted righteous is to be counted righteous by Jesus because of what he did, and it says here that's what he does for his people. He reckons you. He counts you. He, he's the one who makes you righteous. Did you notice that? You can't make yourself righteous. You can't do enough. How many of you have friends who have a scale, maybe not literally, but they keep, they keep records and they're figuring they've done more good than bad. And if they were to die, you know, there's, 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 there's a record there. God, if there's a God, He's keeping records and He's got the record and He knows I've done more good than bad. Everyone in this room, if you have any acquaintances or friends at all, you have those kind. And this text says, none of that counts. What counts is that the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, makes many to be accounted righteous. When we get into the New Testament preaching, we often use language, especially from Romans, about being 
declared, legally declared, not guilty, justified, acquitted. That's what this is talking about. You're declared righteous because of what he did. And the resurrection is tied to that. You're completely dependent, resting upon, believing into a living, resurrected God-man, this servant of the Lord, this one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith can't be in one on a cross because he's not there any longer. Your faith can't be in, oh, you know, I just get the wonderful giggly feelings when I look at that picture. There's no no place to look. It's not, it's not the Jesus of any movie you've ever seen that saves sinners. But it's this resurrected one. It's this one who was perfect, who lived a perfect life, who gave his life a sacrifice for the sins of many, and then was raised and is even now making intercession for transgressors. That's where your faith has to be, if it's to be a saving faith. Last thing I want you to see is this. The resurrection was the coronation, if you will, for Christ and His kingship. Listen to what Jesus said to Pilate. He says that I was born for this purpose. I've come into the world to bear witness to this truth. What's the truth? That he was the king. That was the question Pilate posed. Are you the king? He said, that's why I was born. He was born to be the king. The resurrection affirmed it. The resurrection was like putting the crown on his head. Jan Ritterbo says, the man of sorrows is now, Isaiah 53, 12, I will divide him a portion with many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. The man of sorrows is now a conquering king who claims a numerous people as his own by right of conquest through a severe struggle. That's what verse 7 Verse 12 is saying, you've got a king now. You have a king. He's conquering. He's subduing. He's providing. J. Alexander says, the simple meaning of the first clause, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, is that he shall be triumphant, not that others shall be sharers in his victory, but that he shall be as gloriously successful in his enterprise as other victors ever were in theirs. He's the king. He's the one that's subduing. And notice 
If you're in Christ Jesus, you're mentioned here too. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. Earlier, we're told that he suffered and died for the many. Now it says that he's going to divide the spoil with the many and in the next clause, the strong. Who are the many and the strong? We are. The elect, the blood-bought, redeemed are the many. We're the strong in Christ Jesus. And we're the ones that he is giving all his good gifts to. The resurrection is all about Christ being king. The resurrection is all about our being justified by what he's done and what he's doing here in his active, ongoing intercession for transgressors. The resurrection is ultimately all about the will of God. It was God's plan. He carried it out to perfection, and that's why you can trust Him. It's been finished. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is raised from the dead? Do you believe that he is even now as the king subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us and restraining and conquering his enemies and our enemies? Do you believe that you're in right standing with God? The only way you can have that right standing, the only way you can enjoy his kingly purposes, the only way you can know God's will for your life is through faith in Christ. This one. The one set forth 700 years before Christ came in Isaiah's prophecies. The one that's revealed to us so clearly in the gospel accounts. And the one who is explained to us so wonderfully in the epistles. And the one who's coming again. To judge the living and the dead. Do you look forward to that? If you, if your hope is in the resurrection of Christ, you can. Let's pray. Father, we thank